Right now in fast, so much for the Dow's date with destiny. The winning streak ends at 13 and gone is all the talk of the late 1800s. A sharp rise in bond yields triggering a midday turnaround to look at what spooked the credit markets and the road ahead for stocks from here. Plus, smooth sailing for one part of the travel industry while a number of the airline stocks are hitting turbulence. The cruise lines seem to have the wind at their back. We will break down the high times and the high seas coming up. And later, charting the bank sector's next move, Meta's mega options action and the Taylor Swift's impact on the bottom line at Live Nation. It's hardly been a cruel summer for the owner of Ticketmaster. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, and joining us for the hour, Rebecca Patterson, former Bridgewater chief strategist. Welcome, Rebecca. And we start off with that crashing halt to what would have been a historic rally after spending much of the day on track to mark its longest winning streak since the late 1800s. The Dow turned a sharp corner midday, closed down more than 200 points. The S&P and Nasdaq following suit. All three major indices closing just off the lows of the day. The catalyst for the market turnaround seemed to be a spike in bond yields, the 10-year jumping 15 basis points for its biggest increase since last September. That move appears to have been tr- uh, triggered by rumblings out of Japan. The yen strengthening against the dollars, the BOJ mulls a change to its yield curve controls. So should we be, uh, we should be getting that decision around midnight tonight. Rebecca, you've been watching this news. What is it? Was that the excuse to sort of lighten up here? I mean, I think it's a reasonable move in treasuries, given that over the last decade, you've seen capital from Japan leaving in search of yield. The estimates are as much as two and a half, almost three trillion dollars over the last decade in search of yield, leaving the country, including treasuries. So if the Bank of Japan decides to start the very slow incremental process of tightening monetary policy, you would assume that's going to reduce this capital outflow and that is going to put one source of pressure up on bond yields. Although I wouldn't get too excited about it. It's, you know, if the Bank of Japan does something, it's going to be incremental. We're talking about a 50 basis point cap on the 10-year JGB now, maybe going to 100 basis points. So it's still a huge differential with policy in the U.S. and Europe, Canada, Australia, pretty much everywhere else except China. Right, and that differential has contributed to a carry trade that we've been seeing. And so this could lead to an, uh, an unwind or the start of an unwind. Um, the, the new governor, Ueda, had telegraphed that there wouldn't be a change to policy, but this report that came out by Nikkei midday seemed to indicate that there could be talk of tweaking this policy, and that's what sort of got everybody on edge here. You know, it's interesting how you framed it. It's like the spike in yields in the 10-year caused a sell-off in equities, and was that the reason? And think about this. I mean, we've seen the 10-year, you know, move from basically, you know, up to 4%. It got a bit higher there. It kind of found a little bit of a level here. And the equity market has not been bothered at all over the last, let's say, six to nine months. And we've seen a lot of upward kind of volatility. So I do think it's kind of a bit of an excuse. I think the idea would be that there would be some liquidity taken out. Danny Moses was on the desk last week. and was talking about this actually with Cameron Dawson. This was the thing. You know, I think you asked the question, what's the main event? Is it going to be central bank policy or is it going to be these big earnings? And I think both of them agreed at that. And it's interesting that the earnings while, you know, the, the ones that we were most excited about, the big cap tech ones, you know, it's like, fine, you know, the money's moved out of them. It's found a home here. But it could be this. This could be the excuse for people to say, OK, maybe like, you know, higher yields for longer is is really going to be here, here to stay. Now that the Fed meeting's out of the way, we're not really going to hear a presser from Powell for another what month and a half or so. So maybe what the BOJ has to do is more important right now than the U.S. Fed. Yeah. Karen, what was your take on today's move? You know, I wasn't really sure what it could have been. The bond move could have been a lot of things, but also it just sort of felt like 
things were really getting frothy and, you know, the combination of, you know, the that Medi-Call was really positive mm -hmm. and, you know, it's circular and sort of that started trading down at the same time. And I don't know, in the last five minutes of the day, I just shorted some spiders because I felt like, God, even though it was down 200, I just felt like, wow, what a move we've had. And, you know, I'm always long, net long for sure, but this just seemed like an excuse to sell off what has been a very <laughs> broad and uh, I, I find impressive rally, probably too far. Yeah. Tim, I'm curious what you, what you think and um, what, you know, if there is an end to a carry trade, could that be, you know, money that comes out of tech stocks? Could that be, I mean, where, where does that, you know, where does that hit? Well, the, the carry trade is, is less significant and has been less powerful than the free money trade. And, and so, you know, the fact that, that we are trying to normalize interest rates, at least real rates, et cetera, et cetera, is, is the bigger dynamic. Uh, I, I think talking about Japan and talking about the Dow are two different things today. I mean, I, you know, the Dow went down today because the Dow was up 13 days straight. And, and you know, I don't think there's anything more to that. The fact that yields are moving higher, I think global central banks and how they've manipulated their yield curves significantly more than the Fed has over the last decade has major implications for the Treasury market. And I do think that it is significant that if they start to move above half a percent uh, in Japan, I also think that the yen's weakness up to 150 as we were late last fall, it's only 7 percent off of those lows, numerical highs. And I think there's there's definitely more room to go. It's great news for Japanese equities, by the way, that you you've ended deflation and that you possibly are entering YCC. And, and I think that's something, again, altogether different, something to think about. And I think that the dollar at some point is going to go lower. So um, the reason why yields are moving higher in the U.S., first of all, the data has been better. Um, there are technical issues as it relates to uh, U.S. Treasury issuance that cannot be overlooked here. Um, but on a day when it would have been fun to, to pop champagne and blow off fireworks, um, earnings season has been uh, significantly better than people had expected. But the stocks have priced a lot of that in. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Rebecca, do you think that this is sort of, I don't want to say sideshow because I think that sort of um, lessens it too much. But is this just sort of something that's going on? But here we are in the U.S. and we have markets at these certain valuations, which are high given where we are in the cycle. I mean, I think it's all of it, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at 12-month forward price earnings for the U.S., we're significantly above long-term medians. Japanese stocks significantly below long-term medians. There's valuation mismatches there. I agree with Karen. U.S. stocks have had such a good run year-to-date, especially the mega-cap tech, of course, um, that to see it getting all that good news, all that soft-landing euphoria priced in, it does leave things a bit vulnerable, at least in the short term. Um, I think we have to watch and see, can the consumer resiliency continue? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of good news for the consumer. You know, they have a lot of fixed rate mortgages. The rising interest rates isn't feeding through the housing market the way it has in past cycles. And that's allowing the consumer to hang in there longer than I think a lot of folks expected this time. But they're still moderating. And, and as Powell liked to say yesterday multiple times, long and variable lags. So there's still more to come in terms of the pass through from monetary to the consumer. They'll keep slowing. The question is, does it tip over? And then what is that catalyst to make them pull back? Do, do companies finally lay off more workers? Or what else is it that gets them to pull back? We haven't seen it yet. I think the layoff, that seems likely. I mean, one of the things driving the tech rally is this expectation of 
being able to run much more efficiently on much, with much fewer people. But the thing about the are we in a soft landing or no recession, the flip side of that is the Fed can't cut, right? So I think we're just going to have to stay higher for longer, as you said. And that, that's not quite as bullish as, oh, might they pivot. No, right. not that he was saying he would pivot yesterday. That wasn't what right. he was Although saying. Although the markets think that there is a pivot yeah, coming think, in yes, May. That we're yeah. Yeah, near the end. Well, we have to be near to the end just by definition than we were at the beginning. But, um, you know, we look at things like oil moving higher. And so it's going to, I think maybe have we seen the, the, the bulk of the inflation work done, this last part's going to be pretty hard. Yeah. It's funny, though. You know, we saw the GDP print, right? And I don't think anyone uh, coming into Q2 thought we were going to say have something north of 2%, right? So we have a 2.4% print. We've seen crude oil go from $68 to $80. It feels like in a straight line over the last month and a half. It feels like maybe this like might be a little bit of like a kind of a last-ditch sort of uh, activity here. If you think about what's going on in China, like the data is really not good there. And the idea that they wouldn't export that weakness at some point, we know that the data um, in, in, in Europe is, is not particularly good. So I just kind of wonder if whatever happened in Q2, you know, we have this situation where home values have stayed fine. Okay, we've seen the, the wealth effect with the stock market has been pretty good. A lot of folks, I think it's becoming consensus now that the year-over-year comparisons as it relates to inflationary readings are going to start to look, you know, pretty good here. And then all of a sudden, we've seen an uptick in some of these prices and some of the related stocks. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the death rattle. And I'll go back to July 18th, okay, when Microsoft announced the pricing for, for their Office Copilot. Okay, that stock, we talked about it that day. It rallied 5% in a straight line. It gained $130 billion in market cap. And it really hasn't seen an uptick since then. It's down about 10% on a report in a guide that looked fine, okay? So maybe investors are starting to pay attention to valuation. You talk about a 10-year at 4%. Remember back in 2021 when the Fed signaled that they were going to raise rates to battle inflation? What got nailed? Tech. Tech got nailed. So maybe that's kind of the start of this cycle a little bit. If we want to be notes of caution right now, one other thing that I actually read from Evercore, so I want to attribute correctly, but it was a really good point. Right now, consumer confidence has rallied as inflation has come down, purchasing power is higher. They feel great about today. If you look at the consumer confidence forward indicators, very depressed. And when you see that kind of mismatch between today and looking forward, usually when it gets that wide, the difference, it is in the lead up to a recession. The consumers are starting to signal, we're getting nervous, we're pulling back. And to your point on oil, you know, that could be a source in and of itself for the headline CPI, not the core, but the headline mm -hmm. to have an upside surprise in the coming months. So we definitely need to keep an eye on that because that could feed into inflation expectations and it could keep the Fed a little more nervous a little longer. Yeah, I mean, oil is up uh, something like 14 percent since the last Fed meeting alone. So in the past month, um, let's get more on the Bank of Japan and what that decision could mean for the dollar and currencies. Let's bring BK Asset Management's Kathy Lean. She's the managing director of FX Strategy. Kathy, great to see you again. Great to be on. What are you expecting and how have traders been positioning for this uh, in terms of their yen positions? You know, Melissa, it's really interesting because in the run-up to the BOJ meeting, even we talked about yesterday, we have not seen a significant um, increase in the Japanese yen because, you know, prior to that, a week before, two weeks ago, the um, Bank of Japan basically stayed mum on all of those reports that suggested that they were not going to change the yield curve control. But today, we've seen a rush of positions um, to hedge against yen strength because, you know, we're seeing, you know, the Nikkei report, 
like you mentioned earlier, about how they could potentially um, drop the yield curve control or allow flexibility around the half percent that Rebecca just mentioned. So I think, you know, investors are not as convinced that we're going to see inaction by the BOJ. They're still trying to get a good feel about this okay. new BOJ governor. And so I think, you know, leading up to, we got a couple hours to the BOJ meeting, we're going to see ongoing yen strength. And I think there's a very good chance we could actually see a move by the Bank of Japan that leads to a more significant rise in the currency. So what are the ripple effects you're going to be looking for, you know, when we start getting headlines about the decision, I don't know, midnight or so, our time? So what's important is that this is not an isolated issue for Japan, because, you know, you talk about this in the top of the hour, which is that it has a direct impact on the U.S. bond market. Back in December, um, when they last surprised with a change in the yield curve control, we basically see saw a global sell-off in bonds. And for the 10-year bond yield, that, you know, coincidentally or not, marks the bottom in 10-year yields, which went from 1.35% up to 2 and now to 4. Now, of course, you know, BOJ cannot be attributed to all of the move, but perhaps it kicked off part of it. So we're going, because the market is not completely correctly positioned for a BOJ um, a policy tweak, if we do have a change, I think we'll see another sell-off in bonds and a rise in yields. We're seeing a little bit of that right now today. We talked about that just before. So I think you know, you're going to see more um, bond yield strength and you know more you know, just weakness in um, the prices, bond prices. Kathy, great to get your take. Thanks so much. Kathy Lean, BK Asset Management. Um, and spike in yields would be further weakness, I would imagine, for stocks, Tim. For sure. And, and, and again, we're, we're coming from one of the greatest nine-month periods in, uh, of performance in U.S. stock market history. So, um, it, it, you know, and, and yields, lower yields at one point. Look, there were a lot of people that were saying we were going to break 3% on the 10-year, and they didn't know where it was going to stop on the downside. So, uh, you know, if everyone's now calling for higher yields. I think there's a lot of people that have been uh, calling for something very different. This is, there, there are technical elements of what's going on here, and they also are mechanically how you value stocks. You use a discount rate, a higher discount rate, on, you know, you move up to 4%. It's very powerful uh, in, in terms of what it means for, for equities. I, and, and again, back to Japan, one of the greatest kind of manipulators, and, and they, they talk about it. I mean, YCC equals yield curve control. And that's something, um, it's great for Japanese banks, by the way, though. And I think that's one of the reasons why Japanese equities will go higher. All right. Our next guest believes we are closing in on an inflection point in the market. Joe Lavornia was the chief economist at the White House National Economic Council. He's now chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities America. Joe, great to see you. Um, you think Same the market Thank can't, you can't rally much longer? I'm still in the recession camp, and I'm listening to all the comments, very interesting, about the 10-year yield. And we know we discount the equity market, which is a long-duration instrument, by 10 years. But investors right now can earn 5.5% in Treasury bills with no duration risk, no liquidity risk, nothing. That yield curve is still extraordinarily inverted. And to me, that's why the soft landing ultimately doesn't make sense. Uh, I do believe in the wisdom of crowds, and the yield curve uh, does have... Um, an unblemished forecasting record. The issue always, Melissa, is the timing. And the timing with these things is always very difficult. But as long as that short rate is yielding well above 5%, my guess is over time, you're going to suck more and more liquidity out of the market. That will be bad for risk taking. And that means lower stock prices and much wider credit spreads. 
Hey, Joe, um, the dollar's had this move. I mean, year over year is down pretty significantly, but it's kind of dropped off in the last month or so. How, how are you thinking about the dollar in this framework, and, and what does it mean for U.S. corporate earnings? Because, again, we just mentioned that GDP print, and we talk about corporate earnings where I think a lot of folks were thinking that S&P would be, you know, 200 bucks this year, and we're yeah. still consensus solidly above that, and, and I'm wondering how much do you think the dollar is playing into that? The dollar is, uh, well, overseas earnings, my understanding is about 40% or thereabouts of the S&P. I mean, feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you highlighted China being soft. Uh, their inflation is weakening quite dramatically. Uh, if we've got disinflation coming out of China, that ultimately should come back into the U.S., even though recently we've seen agri you know, agricultural and, and energy prices rise. I don't think the dollar is a major factor for the Fed and a major factor for the equity market. It seems to me that monetary policy still is the predominant straw that stirs the drink. And uh, the Fed is almost done hiking, hopefully. But with rates high and the Fed undertaking QT, uh, I think that ultimately is more important. And when they stop, it'll be a function really of the labor market, less so the dollar, right? The labor market has to loosen. Unemployment has to rise. Wage growth needs to slow. That's what Powell reiterated again yesterday. And the only way that happens, Dan, is if the economy goes into a recession, which ironically, the Fed staff apparently now is not forecasting a recession. So I don't think the dollar really is that central here, unless it really was to collapse. And that to me is unlikely because other than the end, I don't see the euro, which the eurozone arguably is already in recession. That's not going to supplant the dollar at the moment. Why are you still in the recession camp, Joe? And what's your time frame for this call? I'm still in the recession camp for two reasons, Melissa. Number one, if you look at the index leading indicators and the yield curve, we're, ba we're closer to the midpoint to the sort of the back half of like the longest leads we've got. Rebecca talked about the housing market not behaving normally like it does because people have locked in low rates. They've also done that, by the way, on auto loans. So again, these leads or these lags from monetary policy are long and variable. Until some of these forward-looking indicators reverse, uh, I still think you have to be much more worried about recession. Maybe the probability of recessions falling a little bit, and maybe you get some weird inverse operation twist scenario where somehow the front end could rally a bit on modest Fed easing and the back end sells off. But the only way historically the yield curve has ever normalized is through Fed easing. And given how inverted it is, the Fed has to ease a lot, which implicitly means if it's going to ease a lot, there must be a recession. Joe, thanks. Joe Lavornia. Thanks, everybody. Do you see that, Rebecca? What Joe see? I mean, there's definitely signs that large parts of the economy in the United States are moderating, as the Fed said. Mm -hmm. right? But the question to me is, when do the broader layoffs start? I think if we're going to have a recession, we have to see the layoffs. Now, it's interesting. When we think about 2007, 2008, right ahead of the great financial crisis, the layoffs really happened right at the peak of the stock market. So it was really July 2007. Everything went south together and it was sudden. So it was really just months before we were in, really in that crisis. And so it's a good thing just to remember that even though we aren't there yet, it doesn't mean it can't happen quickly. I don't know if we need a catalyst for that to happen or companies just suddenly say, it's been really good for really long. Maybe we should pull it in a little bit. But the timing, I agree, is really hard. It's such an unusual cycle. We had a manufacturing recession in a way. We had a housing recession in a way. Everyone talks about rolling recessions. Because of the pandemic, because of the stimulus after the pandemic, it's just been a really hard economic cycle to call. And I think we see that in the Fed. I think they're doing a little hopeful happy dance that maybe they actually get their soft landing. But I think it's way too early to, to call victory.
Coming up, we're all over the after hours action at Intel and Ford. The stocks are moving. Uh, Intel is up by seven and a quarter percent. Ford is up by one and a quarter. We'll dive into the numbers next. And later, fight or flight for the financials. The group falling today as regulators unveil sweeping changes for the big banks. We'll tell you what that could mean for your money. More fast money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you. Ford raising its 2023 guidance after a huge earnings beat. The call kicking off at the top of the hour. CNBC's Phil LeBeau has been listening in. Phil. Melissa, we're about 20 minutes into that call. Jim Farley pretty much doing the, the wrap-up of what they just released uh, about an hour ago. Let's go over those numbers, and you see the stock. It initially popped much higher, and then it's pulled back a little bit. Yes, they beat on the top and the bottom line, beating on the bottom line by a pretty substantial uh, margin. But it's really what their results are for the divisions that we want to focus on. The commercial vehicle division, it's on fire. $2.4 billion in the quarter. The internal combustion engine business, also red hot. $2.3 billion. Then you see the EV division lost a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars in the second quarter. And by the way, when you look at the EV outlook, they admit that things are going slower than they uh, thought it would be just three months ago. They are now expecting the EV business to lose $4.5 billion this year. In March, they expected the full year loss to be $3 billion. And oh, by the way, they lost a little over $2 billion on EVs last year. So that loss is going to double this year. And they are also pulling back the timeline for when they expect to hit a run rate of 600,000 EVs production-wise. They're now expecting that to happen sometime in 2024. Originally, they thought that would happen by the end of 2023. And then they are raising their full-year guidance. But remember, this guidance is being raised on the backs of the EV or the uh, ICE internal combustion engine business. The traditional F-150 would fall into that category. And the pro business, the commercial vehicle business, where Ford leads all other automakers, now expecting free cash flow of between six and a half to seven billion dollars compared to six billion. That was the original guidance and now expecting to earn 11 to 12 billion dollars instead of nine to 11 billion dollars. Melissa, we're going to hop back on this call. I think the Q&A section is where it's going to be most interesting because they're admitting the EV business is ramping up much slower than they were expecting. Jim Farley is still talking very optimistically on this call about their potential when it comes to electric vehicles. But you and I both know you can raise your guidance. You can talk all you want about how you're going to be moving forward. It's the EV business that is driving investor sentiment right now. And this report does very little to give people confidence that Ford will be making the money it expects to make eventually with electric vehicles, at least no time in the immediate future. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, uh, the Ford CEO, also saying that pricing pressure for EVs has dramatically increased in just the past 60 days. I mean, that tells you how difficult this business has become, Karen. It is. But, you know, as a long-suffering GM holder that mm -hmm. pretty much put up the exact same thing, fantastic ice business, great cash flow margins. I mean, there's a lot to like. Nobody cares. Although, you know, they're saying the EV business there and GM as well, ramping up more slowly than they thought. The ice business hanging on yeah. way more way more durably they than they thought. Durable. Right. <laughs> so the durability there, a durable dollar of ice is worth no, nothing-ish. And, the, you know, the EV losses are multiplied. It's frustrating. Um, but Ford and GM are kind of the same story right here. They have to scale up. They know that. This is not news to them. They're trying, but the market's not patient at all. 
I think it's interesting, though, that I think that the take is that adoption of EVs is slowing. I mean, like, so, so the, the rates, and we, we know what they were. I think it was 70% two years ago, 50% last year, expected to be 40%. And, you know, the TAM is still there. I mean, it's still massive, right? Um, but if you're having some of these major automakers with, like, the Ford F-150 electric, it, it was like, it sounded like a great story, and then they just announced that they're cutting by 17%, the prices. And I think when you get yourself in, the early adopters are in. They all own a Tesla, like here in North America or, or something like that. And I think the next haul is going to be much harder. And now that you're involved in a price war and, and crude oil and gasoline has come down, I know gasoline's ticked back up here a little bit, maybe there's not all the incentives to go out there and do this thing that's a bit harder than owning an ICE. Doesn't this make the Tesla story look a little bit, bit better, Dan? I don't know. The competition I, just isn't as robust as, as the bear case might want to put forth? I think the worst case scenario for Tesla is that the demand is not there for this uh, to become a much bigger market. I think everybody who decided, like, like they thought about buying a Model 3 or a Model X or something, they kind of own them right now. And you're seeing that because they've seen, I mean, their numbers have moderated too, right? Haven't they a little bit? And I think the next part of the story really is going to be demand in China. And they have serious competition in China. And that deal that, that Volkswagen just did I, I, with Xpeng. You saw that stock rally 30%. Yeah. That, that, that to me is like, that would be, I'd be worried about that if I was a Tesla shareholder. And if you want to pull it out to macro, you mentioned China, you know, the, the stimulus talk we're hearing after the latest Politburo meeting isn't focused on pushing up auto sales. Mm -hmm. right. It's talking about the consumer, but it's not talking about autos, which they have done right. in the past. It doesn't look like that's happening this time. Another earnings alert here on Intel. Shares surging after reporting a beat on the top of the bottom lines. The chipmaker also issuing strong guidance for the current quarter. Christina Partsinevelis is here on set to take us inside the numbers. Christina. Well, I can start by saying Intel's profits are back, baby, because <laughs> after two quarters of profit losses, Intel surprised investors by posting an earnings per share of 13 cents, which was much higher than the three cent loss expected. And much of that has to do with cost cutting or as Zuckerberg likes to say, the year of efficiencies. In February, just as a reminder, Intel cut its dividend, cut CEO base pay, laid off staff, with the goal to save $3 billion just by this year, and then $10 billion by 2025. But you can only cut costs so far. What about driving demand? So in this current, or Q2, I should say, Intel's client computing group, which includes Intel's laptop, as well as desktop processor shipments, actually fell 12% year over year but was higher than uh, anticipated and much of the reason for the overall Q2 beat and also adds to the narrative that PC sales have bottomed. But there are concerns with data center revenue and AI revenues. That's down about 15% year over year. The company earnings deck actually blamed competitive pressures. And on the earnings call that's going on just now, I was listening upstairs, CEO Pat Gelsinger warning Q3 server CPUs, those are the central processing units, will decline because of near-term focus on AI accelerators rather than general purpose compute. So, AKA they're focusing on AI chips versus the old school CPU ones. Stock is up as this is seen kind of a, as a turnaround. The first sign of a turnaround yeah. under Pat Gelsinger. But all of these buckets in terms of their businesses, they did come in better than expected. So exactly. even data center, which had been just a dog, actually beat analyst expectations. Ex data center, the client compute, Mobileye was one of the maybe the weaker ones. That is the separate unit. But overall, it, the units have been doing really good. And much of the reason why he's going to say that this is, you know, the turnaround showing. Right. Christina, thanks. Christina Partsinevelis. Tim, do you still own Intel? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, 
not trading this thing for a couple of weeks. I, I'm not telling you I think that they deserve to be trading anywhere near the multiple of the peers, but the whole group's getting pulled up. Uh, it was a huge day for semis across the board today. Lamb Research announced and, and certainly beat on expectations. Look, Intel had already pre-announced, so the, these, were, these were much better, much better than that pre-announcement. And, and I, I, on some level, it does feel like CPU didn't lose as much at the expense of AI as people had thought. So that I think that is the theme, and Gelsinger's apparently out there. Um, it's really, uh, I think, for the core business, it's where they are losing ground to AMD, uh, you know, Genoa versus, I don't know, the names of these chips are, are tough to keep up with. Genoa sounds like a, like a salami. Um, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, it, there's, there's a question uh, about where Intel is long term. Uh, in the short term, the bar was so low. And the fact is that their core business and PCs are probably bottoming. Uh, inventories have been turned over. That's good stuff for a stock like this that was destroyed. By the way, John Fort will be sitting down with CEO Pat Gelsinger. And you can catch some of that interview on the last call tonight at 7 p.m. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A tale of two travel stops. It's smooth sailing for one earnings mover and a travel nightmare for another. The name's next. And later, a metamorphosis. Shares of the former Facebook soaring as Mark Zuckerberg promises to transform the tech titan into an AI juggernaut. Will the big gamble pay off? The debate next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two travel stocks taking off in different directions today, starting with Royal Caribbean, the stock launching to its highest level since February 2020 after topping Q2 estimates, upping its EPS guidance for the current quarter. Meantime, shares of Southwest Airlines falling nearly 9% today after the airline missed on the bottom line, said it expects unit revenue to tumble by as much as 7% in the current quarter. And that seems to him like a departure from what we were hearing from the other oh, airlines. departure, nice. Uh, oh, I didn't even realize. Uh, okay. <laughs> Should expect nothing less uh, than that from you. I, yeah, rising costs, there's a dynamic of efficiency in airlines. People always hold it out during the best of times is usually when airlines then begin to be inefficient, overreach on capacity. And I think there's still a lot of skepticism there. So um, if you think about the stock, though, it had a 37 percent move up until the point where all the airline stocks pulled back. It was a combination of a couple things. There was uh, the, there was the Boeing announcement. There was there was the Alaska Air Dynamics. There was the Pratt & Whitney. Um, so you have different things that have put a little dent into the airlines trade. Um, not my favorite airline of the group, but I think this was probably overdone. Karen, you're highlighting Royal Caribbean. Yeah, one that I normally don't look at. But yeah. I mean, it was, first of all, going into earnings, the stock had run so far. Uh, I don't follow her closely, but this earnings, I mean, they talked about a step change in booking volumes and prices. I feel like they step changed already. I mean, so this is like taking it to another level. I guess that's how they get to that north of 100% occupancy and profit margin goes up. I mean, good for them, good for the whole space. I'm surprised, though, because I feel like we're kind of far into this recovery. Right. And, you know, it's interesting at the Fed press conference yesterday, the second question that was after Steve Leisman's was something to the effect of this is an economy where we're seeing people pay up for Taylor Swift tickets. People are going on. Well, now we can put in also that people are going on cruises and paying up for these cruises. Um, Rebecca, does this sort of what do you take from these little bits and pieces in terms of tying it back to the economy? Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for the cruise situation. On airlines, the only thing I'd say anecdotally is I'm starting to see 
lower prices going into the fall and winter months than I've seen over the last six months. It's just one dot. It's one anecdote. But to me, it's something worth keeping a close eye on. You know, this World Caribbean is really interesting. If you go back and look at 2019 earnings, they earned nine and a half dollars. They're expected to earn half of that this year. The mm. stock's above where it was when it dropped, when it just like fell out of bed in February 2020, despite their sales being up two billion, or at least consensus up from 11 billion in 2019 to expected 13 billion. So it's an expensive stock to where it was back in 2019. Coming up, we are diving into MetaShare, surging after a blockbuster earnings report and Mark Zuckerberg's promise of an AI revolution at the tech titan. Plus, we're breaking down the banks. Is it time to take the money and run all the way out of this trade? We'll tell you what the charts say. More Fast Money right after this. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Stepping back today, the Dow snapping its 13-day winning streak. The S&P and Nasdaq also lower. We are watching shares of Live Nation after hours. The company saying strong concert demand contributed to a 27% surge in revenue and an earnings beat. That stock, though, is down a percent right now. Shares of Roku, meantime, jumping after hours. The streaming company posting a smaller-than-expected loss per share and a revenue beat. And take a look at Boston Beer, the stock leaping after it beats on the top and the bottom lines. The drink maker also reaffirming its full-year earnings per share guidance. Karen, you're in Live Nation. I am in Live Nation. Um, a little disappointing, the reaction. Huge numbers, not mm-hmm. shocking. All right, we, do, we don't know how much of Taylor is there and when, when it goes through the, the python of Live Nation. I mean, it's just an extraordinary ecosystem. It is not cheap at all, but I think they've built something that is kind of uh, unrepeatable right now. And so uh, I'm staying <laughs> long. And, I, you know, this, this is the peak season now and this quarter that we're currently in. So they'll put up big numbers again, but wow, what a machine they've built. All right, let's get another check here on Intel. Shares are jumping after reporting a beat on the top and the bottom lines, returning to profitability after two straight quarters of losses. Let's get more on the results from Chris Rowland. He's a senior analyst at Susquehanna Financial Group. He's got a neutral rating on the stock, a $35 price target, which uh, Intel has surpassed right now. Chris, great to have you with us. Um, people are all jazzed about uh, the beats in, in client computing and data center in, across uh, all the businesses, basically. Are you confident that this is the start of an upward trajectory, that, that it's not smooth sailing ahead, but that we've seen the worst? Well, this was a nice bounce off the bottom here, but data center in particular was guided down. And Pat made a pretty major confession, which is that hyperscalers right now are focused and concentrated on building out their AI training systems, and this may be crowding out some of the server spend. Are you getting any color on on how much crowding out there is, or are you getting any sense that you can sort of triangulate from what others are saying in the space? Yeah, Pat is saying that this is indeed a short-term phenomenon. We think this is at least a three-quarter phenomenon. Uh, and I think all the signs are pointing to a pretty major beat coming for NVIDIA. Um, Intel, you're expecting them to spend a lot of money on its foundries, um, and it's going to have to make use of those foundries in terms of utilization. Does that happen under this sort of scenario? It may. Uh, we believe they have one or two potential foundry announcements to come in the back half of the year. It may include NVIDIA themselves. 
but we think it would be for a smaller portion of their product set, uh, but still a nice feather in the cap for this foundry and per perhaps to get a little bit momentum behind this initiative. Chris, the guided um, revenues for the current quarter up like one and a half percent from the midpoint of consensus here, but uh, gross margins up two percent from 41 percent consensus to about 43 or so. Where, where is that going to come from? Basically, in you know, they never should have had gross margins in the 30s. That that's a commodity type margin for a semiconductor company. So a lot of this is just pure normalization. Uh, I would say that this bounce is coming a little bit from better utilizations, better product pricing, and just a return to normalization as we work through all of this inventory. Chris, thanks. Good to get your take. Chris Rowland, Susquehanna. Thank you all. Tim, um, what would you want to ask on this conference call? Well, I, I, I still want to hear what their pipeline looks like in AI, because you know, at some point, while we have zero expectation, and by 2025, when they say that they're going to really be ready, the world's a different place. But um, it, it's important to understand. It's, it's one thing also to have DCAI um, have some AI component of the build out. And I still want to hear what's going on with that. I mean, there is some element of, of, of a core business that's still going to see uh, upward momentum here. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it's really what, what should a more commoditized uh, semiconductor company that we just discussed shouldn't have margins in the 30s. What's it worth? Um, because the entire sector of semis has been pulled up on multiple, and I don't see it coming back uh, anytime soon. So where's Intel here? Coming up, Meta's explosion post-earnings. The options pits thinks the uh, stock's fiery run can go even higher. That's next. And banks losing steam. The charts reveal there may be more trouble in the sector. We'll have that story in two. Let's take another uh, check on shares of Ford. They are down by about 1.4% right now. The CEO just saying on the conference call, we will see more hybrid systems. You will see more hybrid systems from us. The stock had been as high as up 6% or so in the after-hour session. Um, Tim, what do you make of that headline? Well, it's what we were talking about, they, they, and they're using the term durability also on internal combustion. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's funny because on our morning call today, uh, Karen and I were both like, or it was two days ago, sorry, on the GM call. Um, we, were, we were saying, what, I thought those numbers at GM were pretty good. She said, yeah, me too. I have no idea. I mean, J.P. Morgan wrote a report about that, which basically said, look, um, clients are calling in wondering what it was. And I, it's what we said here on Ford. Um, the, the core business right now is still the internal combustion business with zero attachment to, to its valuation. But um, I, I do think that these numbers are solid. And it's more important about these companies being efficient with the business they do have. And Ford's had major problems here. Um, Major rally, big pullback. It's probably, I think it's found a bottom. All right. Uh, MetaShares hitting a new 52-week high today, intraday, on the back of last night's earnings. The company issuing upbeat guidance as it's seen the benefits of Mark Zuckerberg's year of efficiency. The stock was up nearly 9% at its highs, closed up more than 4%. Meta, the single busiest uh, option t today. Mike Coe's here to take a look at the action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, it traded two and a half times its average daily volume. I think it was actually the second busiest after Tesla. Uh, calls significantly outpacing puts, however. A lot of that was actually call sellers. The busiest contract, the weekly 325 calls. We actually saw a lot of early sellers in that. And the reason is probably that it has returned to the scene of the crime, the big disappointment in February of 2022.
Mike, thanks. For more Options Action, tune into the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next is the rebound for the regionals about to hit a roadblock. The chart master saying it's time to take the money and run. We'll go inside that call right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Regional banks down almost 2% today, moving lower along with the midday spike in yields. But the KRE is still up more than 19% in the last two months. The chartmaster Carter Worth in a new note this week highlighting the regionals, saying it might be time to take your money and run. He points out the fund hit its 150-day moving average and is probably heading lower from here. The broader bank index, the BKX, is following a similar pattern. Karen, would you agree with this call? Well, I'm more in the big money center. So, yes, I kind of would. I, you know, this, this PacWest thing was sort of interesting. I wonder if that was somewhat of an inflection point. I, I, the bank run for both has been pretty strong. I'm staying with them, even though I'm somewhat bearish on the market at the moment. But I'm sticking with them. I just feel like at 10 times earnings, some of these names are really cheap. Yeah. Rebecca? Yeah, I mean... I'm still cautious on the regional and smaller banks. I think they have to pull back. They have to be in a more cautious posture. And I think some of that's price, but with this, this uptick, maybe there's still a chance for them to go lower. On the big ones, I think the news that was important is this increased capital buffer that the, the bigger banks have to take on. You know, the headline's scary, but underneath the hood, they don't have to have it done till 2028. Mm-hmm. And the amount of capital is obviously smaller than feared. So I think there's a little bit of a silver lining there for the $100 billion and up firms. Yeah. Tim, how are you feeling about the regionals? I have a position in the KRE, and I think regional banks can go higher. I think I look at interest rates, and I see normalization post-SVB, and that's really what this is about. There's credit problems out there. There's, there's certainly commercial real estate issues that I think some regionals will be hit with. Um, but as a group, and that's why, you know, through the ETF, I think you, you, you know, you're not taking a call on one. Um, I think you can go higher, and I, I think you're following interest rates higher, uh, at least for another few weeks. All right. Up next, final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. We told you at the top of the hour that we were oh so close to the Dow posting a 14-day winning streak. That hasn't happened since 1897. That's 126 years ago. Our team was so hyped that we created all sorts of graphics just in case it happened and even an animation. Take a look. So good. It's too bad. We'll, we'll just have to archive that one and have it ready for when we get another historic Dow streak. I mean, you never know. It could start tomorrow. And in 14 days, we could be playing that animation and all the graphics and the stuff, the fancy. You well, know, I thought they were going to run some stuff with Guy Dami when he started on Wall Street back in. I mean, like, that would have been epic. It was 18 something. But, but, you know, two times in 1987, there were 13 day up. Up streets. In 19, uh, 1987 in being the year, the last time we had a 13-day winning streak. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? I think we could have another historic night tonight. If the Bank of Japan actually does something bigger than expected, they've been in the mud for 10 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. and they're now actually seeing reflation. I, I think... I don't want, I'm going to jinx it. I'm totally going to jinx it. <laughs> I don't think they're watching and like, oh, Rebecca just said that. Uh, now we can't do it. Her again. You never know. All sorts of but people maybe. watch. Of the money. Yeah. You never know. Definitely um, watching. Although we hardly, we don't really watch the Dow too much, but it is a fun stat, Tim. I mean, many reasons why we don't. It's share price weight, <laughs> which is but really the weird. Fact that I mean, <laughs> the, yes, 
the the fact that it's uh, it's all that is weird and makes no sense and really is irrelevant. But it's 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 the fact that the 13 updates, why that's happening. It's not a coincidence and it's yeah. broadening. All right. Time for the final trade. Now let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, kick it off for us. Yeah, so back to Intel, under-owned. Uh, what's it worth? I don't know, but clearly a lot of bad news priced in because of AI. Rebecca Patterson. Okay. Yen, hedge, <laughs> Japanese stocks, DXJ. I think valuations are low, the, eco- the economy's reflating, and positions aren't there. Karen. I am actually long that. Uh, mine, I am always long, but tonight I shorted some spiders because I feel like it's too frothy right at this moment. Damn. Yeah, Intel better hold those gains. I'm long puts in the SMH ETF to tracks the semiconductor index. All right. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining us tonight. Thank you for watching Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.